Father, thank you so very much for your goodness and grace. We thank you for the beautiful, wonderful, and powerful name of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that we can call on his name to be saved. We can call on his name and come by his name to your throne of grace when we need help, when we need mercy. Thank you, Father, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And I thank you, Father, that there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. I ask, Lord, as we continue to worship you by studying your word, as we seek you this morning and have a desire to hear your voice, that we would, that your spirit would guide us and teach us today, and that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. So healing was our topic last week, and we explored the importance of not just physical healing, but spiritual and emotional healing as well. And then we looked at how the priority will always be spiritual healing before physical healing. And this is demonstrated in our passage today. Uh, If you missed last week, um, we talked about how God is still in the business of healing. And I'm very grateful for that. And I love that not only can he, but he does. We just have to be careful because God's greatest priority for our lives is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And while physical healing is awesome and we're commanded to pray for it and to believe for it, it's much more important that a person know Christ as Savior. Because if you know Christ as Savior, you will eventually get an ultimate healing when this old tent wears out and you get a new one and everybody No more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more aches, no more knees cracking every time I stand up, right? All of that will go away because the new body will be perfect. That was last week. Today, even though we are going to look at healing um, and we're going to look at the priority of spiritual over physical healing, we're going to take a little bit different bent. So let's read our passage. Uh, Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Now it happened on a certain day, as he was teaching, that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by, who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find out how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, 
or to say, rise up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. So we have this certain day. Jesus was teaching. There were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by. They had come from the whole surrounding area. And it said the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And you have these men who brought a man on a bed who was paralyzed. And they sought to bring him and lay him before him, but they couldn't because of the crowd. So they went up on the housetop and they let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. So this all happened on a certain day, which really doesn't give us a clue as to how much time has passed since verse 16. However, the whole scene is set up for us in the first couple verses here. As the religious leaders come out to see and hear Jesus, God's power was present to heal. And you have, according to Mark's gospel, chapter 2, four men who brought a paralytic to Jesus to be healed. So let's start with Jesus teaching and the religious leaders. Uh, Jesus was teaching the people the truths of the kingdom of God. That's what he did. And there were Pharisees and teachers of the law from all of the surrounding area, Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. Now remember, there were three sects of religious leaders in Jesus' day, two of which are mentioned here. We had the Pharisees. They were the conservative and legalistic group who were much more interested in their traditions and maintaining their power than the word of God or the welfare of the people. So the Pharisees, right, they, they were what we would call, uh, I mean, gosh, they were, they were very focused on the business end of things. And they were very focused on making sure everybody knew who they were. And they were very focused on making sure everybody showed them reverence and respect. And they were much, much more interested in maintaining those positions of power and those positions of influence than they were in the people that they were supposed to be caring for. That was the Pharisees. Then you had the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were the religious progressives of the day. They did not believe in the supernatural, and they only accepted the five books of Moses, but even then, they did not accept the five books of Moses literally. Because you can't go back and read Genesis through Deuteronomy and not believe in the supernatural. Just think of some of the things that are present in those five books. Things like, well, the creation of the universe. That was supernatural. Or the parting of the Red Sea. Or the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of cloud by day. So on and so forth. The manna from heaven. You, you can't read the first five books of Moses and not see the miraculous power of God. So while the Sadducees claimed to accept those five books, they did not accept them literally. And as the religious progressives of the day, we see religious progressivism today. 
Right? We see it in, in the people who go, well, yeah, you know, well, the Bible is, I mean, it's a good guideline, but we don't take it literally. Or they might say something along the lines of, well, yes, well, we believe in Jesus, but not everybody has to believe in Jesus to go to heaven. Right? And I've heard people who call themselves pastors, and I say they call themselves pastors because they're not, and I know that sounds a little judgy, but it's just true, who will say something along the lines of, well, you know, for Christians, Jesus is the only way. But, but if you're a Muslim, then you have a different way. Or if, if you're a Buddhist, then you have your way. Or if you're a... No. Jesus is the only way. And if you're a Buddhist, then you need to come to Jesus because he's the only way. And if you're a Muslim, then you need to come to Jesus because he's the only way. And if you're an atheist, you need to come to Jesus because he's the only way. The religious progressives of our day will, will say things like that, you know, that the teachings of the Bible are antiquated and that, you know, maybe homosexuality is not a sin. Well, I'm sorry, it is. I'm not sorry. The Bible says it. It's not up to me. But it's the truth. That's religious progressivism of our day. So they did not believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection. We're going to hear more from them later on. Then you have the teachers of the law who are also called scribes and lawyers. Their job was to know and be able to expound upon the Mosaic and Levitical law and its practices and applications. So there's no Sadducees listed here at present, but we will see them soon enough Scribes and lawyers and, t and teachers of the law, however phrasing you want to use, were usually pretty well aligned with the Pharisees. Then you have this phrase that the power of the Lord was present to heal them, which I think is an interesting statement because it could be translated that the power of the Lord was with him, speaking of Jesus, to heal now, if you look at it one way, it means that God's power was there to heal the religious leaders specifically. If you look at it from the second possible way of translating it, it means God's power was with Jesus to heal whomever he would. I don't see a particular problem with either possibility. The second one has a little bit more of a broader application and would include the religious leaders. Now, since we talked about healing last week, um, we're going to kind of skim over that idea for now. If you missed last week, it's on our website. Feel free to go take a listen. Um, but what I want to point out, and what's vital for us to know, is that it is the presence of God that brings the power of God to heal or to do anything else in our lives. It's the presence of God that brings the power of God. And we are present the presence of God, sorry, is always with us because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, even if we don't always recognize it. In John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The Bible is filled with thousands of promises. But one of the promises that absolutely boggles my mind and is also one of my favorites is the fact that God has promised to dwell in us. 
Paul says that there is this treasure in earthen vessels. We are the earthen vessels and the treasure within us is God himself dwelling inside of us. Mind-boggling that he would choose to do so. But that means that we are always in the presence of God. Now, sometimes that can be a little scary. Because that means when I do something dumb, I'm in the presence of God. But it can also be extremely comforting because it means we're never alone. In Psalm 16, verse 18, it says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. When they translated that verse into the Latin, and I know, don't, I don't speak Latin. Don't be impressed. I stole this from somebody. Um, but when they put this, this verse into the Latin, the phrase is Coram Deo. C-O-R-A-M and then D-E-O. Coram Deo. And it means to live before the face of God. In other words, it's the idea that we should always be living our lives with an awareness of, that we are in the presence of God. And when we consider the idea that it is the presence of God that brings the power of God, not just for healing, but for anything and everything else in our lives, well, that's something we should be aware of. It's important for us. So then you have these men who bring their paralyzed friend. And I really like this. So you have this crowd, and they can't get to Jesus. So they went up on the roof in order to try to get him down in front of Jesus. Now in that time, there was often a small hole in the roof that they would use maybe to send laundry up, or if they were drying fruit, to send it back down so they didn't have to carry it up and down the stairs. Um, And for ventilation. However... If the home had such an opening, it was nowhere near big enough to let a person down through, especially a person who was laying flat. So there's two things I want to point out. First, the roof would have been made of a few wood timbers. Most of their homes were made out of clay bricks, um, but they would use a couple of timbers in the roof, basically as a support, but not a lot because wood was rare and expensive. And so then they would cover those few wood timbers with reeds and mud, right? Not shingles, didn't have nice metal roofs that the snow could slide off of and make noise um, when it hit the ground. But that means this would have made a ridiculous mess while they were either widening the hole that was there or making a whole new hole in order to let this guy down before Jesus. So, but this is the picture I get. Because you have Jesus in the house and teaching. And you have crowds surrounding the house, probably listening in through, through the windows or the doors, or, or you know, the, the inside was probably just packed with people, and Jesus is there teaching the people. And then all of a sudden, you know, crumble, crumble, crumble. And the people are, because the people inside would have no idea what was going on. Some of the people outside probably saw these guys carry their friend on the roof. And if they start seeing bits of roof fall down, they, they have a clue. Oh, they're trying to get through the roof. 
But the people inside at first would have had no clue what was happening. Now this is the one thing I wish we had in Scripture. Facial expressions. Facial expressions, that in tone of voice. I think that, that would be fun. Um, but what did Jesus, because Jesus knew what was going on. He knew who was up there. He knew what he was going to do about it because he's God. Crumble, crumble, crumble. And he's teaching. Crumble. At some point in time, right, big crumble. Whole section falls down and lands on, you know, James who's sitting in front of him or, or Peter or whoever sitting there. And, and, and you know, what, what, what in the world? And so did Jesus smirk? That's the, that's the only picture I get. I don't know if it's true. It's right, it's not in the Bible. But I kind of think he kind of got a little, little, a little, like little half smile, a little smirk because he knew what was going on and he just kept going. That's me. I don't know. But what I want to point out, the second thing I want to point out, is this is how we should bring people to Jesus. Now, I'm not saying if you want to introduce somebody to Jesus or invite them to church to make a hole in the roof. The folks we rent from would be very upset, I think. But what they did is they would not allow obstacles to stop them from bringing people to Jesus. That's the point I want to make. These obstacles can include our own fears. Or maybe they include our insecurities. Or maybe they include the resistance or the hostility of those that we're trying to bring. Whatever the case, we cannot allow such obstacles to keep us from bringing people to Jesus. Imagine all the excuses the four men could have made. Ah, oh, there's too many people around. We can't... It's, well, we'll try another day. Oh, well, we, we, we can't go up on the roof and make a hole. That doesn't make any sense. Oh, he's in the middle of teaching. We'll leave him alone. Maybe we'll catch him a little bit later. They didn't use any of those excuses. What about, what will people think of us if we tear a hole in somebody's roof? What, what, maybe people will look at us funny. Maybe people will, will, will put us down or think that we're foolish for our audacity and our boldness. Who cares what people think? We read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 through 18, that he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two. He's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles here. Thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. You see, God has already broken down every wall. He has already removed every obstacle that would keep a person from coming to him. He's gotten those out of the way. We can pray and we can trust that this applies to those who we are sharing the gospel with. Now, a person may reject it. A person, person, a person may not want to listen to you. A person may get angry with you. 
But it will never be, be because God didn't make a way. It will be because of their foolish choice. It will never be because God is unable or unwilling to move those obstacles. It will be because that person refuses the prompting of the Holy Spirit to come to faith. And I think that's important for us. Because I don't know about you, but I've made excuses. Well, I, I, can't, I can't talk to that person right now. It's not the right place. Or I, I, can't, well, I can't share with that person right now because, oh, what if, they, what if they get angry with me? Or what if the people around me make fun of me? Or what if, or what if, or what if, or what if? Metaphorically speaking, tear the hole in the roof and bring the person to Christ. Now, if they refuse to come, and if they refuse to listen, that's not up to you. Some plant, some water, God brings the increase. It is up to us to plant and water. That is up to us. We were talking this morning um, from Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 1 through 9. And you don't have to turn there. I'm going to give you the, the, the synopsis. In Ezekiel chapter 33, God calls Ezekiel a watchman. And he said, if the watchman is on the wall and the enemy comes and the watchman does not sound the alarm and the enemy comes in and kills people, then God says, I will require the blood at the hands of the watchman because the watchman knew that the enemy was coming and didn't sound the alarm. And he says, however, if the watchman on the wall sounds the alarm and the people don't listen, then I will require their blood of their own hands and the watchman will be innocent. Now, back in that day, as God was talking to Ezekiel, what he was telling Ezekiel was very simply this. I am giving you a message to preach to the people. It's a message I know you don't want to deliver. Because it wasn't popular. And he goes, but if you fail to warn them, I will require their blood at your hands. He goes, however, if you warn them and they don't listen, then it's not your fault. That applies to us. That applies to us in sharing the gospel with the world around us. We are not responsible for how they respond. We're responsible to share. Now, you hear me say this a lot. I'm not telling you to get yourself a soapbox and a bullhorn and to go stand on the corner of Maine and Virginia or Maine and Temeche and start screaming at the cars that are passing by. I have a feeling that in the culture of Gunnison, that would be slightly ineffective. And you might get hit with a tomato. Now, if God's calling you to do that, that's between you and God. He's never told me to do that. But how many people in our lives do we have the opportunity to share with? And it may be, I always pick the cashier at Walmart. You guys know my heart for the cashier at Walmart. I've been a Walmart cashier. They need Jesus more than most. But maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a friend. 
Maybe it's that poor cashier at Walmart. Maybe it's the people you play pickleball with. I don't know. But we're called to sound the alarm. Now, if they reject it, that's between them and God. And I've said this before as well. You may get to a point where you've tried on multiple occasions and they really, really, really don't want to listen and it becomes problematic and then okay. So you back off and you pray for them and you pray that God and his Holy Spirit would touch and change their hearts. I have family members like that. I have family members who have gotten very angry with me for sharing the gospel. So now I pray for them, but I don't bring it up as often. Verse 20. When he saw their faith, note that. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven. The scribes and Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why? Are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately, he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. So in these six short verses, we actually see Three miracles which display Jesus' power and one demonstration of his authority. Miracle number one. He saw their faith and he said to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, that really caught my attention this week. He didn't see the man's faith. Whose faith did he see? The friend's faith faith. He saw their faith and said to the man, your sins are forgiven you. Here we see one of the reasons why fellowship within the body of Christ is so vital. There may be days when your faith wavers. Anybody? Am I the only one? Okay, a couple honest people, thank you. Um, There may be days when your faith wavers. Then I or we, the rest of us as a church, we can bring you before God by our faith. We can come alongside you. We can encourage you. We can support you. We can help you. We can love you. We can hold you up. When your faith wavers, the rest of us can do that for you. And then I'm going to tell you, it's going to go the other way. There's going to be times when my faith wavers. And I need you to hold me up. Because I'm a weak, sinful human being. And I have bad days like everybody else. And one of the most important things for me is to know you're praying for me. I don't know if you know that or not. You probably do. I've said it before. (laughs) It's one of the most important things for me to know. Is that you're praying for me. Because, oh, well, you're a pastor. Don't you have just this great and incredible faith? Well, of course I don't. I have my days. Right? There are days where I just I know God's at work, I know He's going to do something, and I, I could step out without any thought or doubt. And there's other days where I'm like, but Lord, how are, are we going to get through this? 
because I'm human. And we need each other. They brought the man for physical healing, but Jesus knows the priority. Our spiritual well-being will always outweigh our physical well-being. And we talked about this last week. Because at the very best, physical healing is temporary. At the very best, physical healing is temporary. Yes, this man was healed from his paralysis. We don't know how old he was, but I'm guessing within 50 years he was dead. What was more important is that his sins were forgiven. Lazarus, raised from the grave. 50, 60 years later, he died again. How sucky would that be? I've already done this. Um, right? Go through all of them. The blind men that were healed and, and, and so on. The deaf men that were healed and, and, and the widow of Nain. Her son was raised from the dead. Right? They're, they're, they all died again. Eventually, that, that healing of, of the blindness or the healing of the deafness really didn't matter because that body went away and they got a new one. Uh, if they were believers in Christ, of course. Physical healing is only temporary. Spiritual healing is eternal. When you know that you have been forgiven because you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, well, that lasts forever. And there's nobody who can take it away. Oh, that's good news. Back, though, for just a moment. Romans 1, 11 and 12 says this. I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith of both you and me. Love that verse. The mutual faith of both you and me. Guys, we need each other. We need each other. None of us is meant to do this alone. And then in Psalm 103, verse 1 through 5, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. I love this passage. I just want to point out a couple very prominent words. Forgives, heals, redeems, crowns, satisfied, satisfies, and renews. Right? Two of those speak of our physical well-being. Healing our diseases and satisfying our mouths with good things. Everything else speaks of our spiritual well-being. Our forgiveness, our redemption, being crowned with loving kindness, and being renewed. All speak of our spiritual well-being. So that's miracle number one. Miracle number two. Jesus' perception of the thoughts of the religious leaders is the second miracle. He knew what they were thinking, John 2.25, tells us that he knew what's in the hearts of human beings. And he confronted them on it. Now, on one hand, they were correct. Only God can forgive sins. On the other hand, they were wrong because Jesus was not committing blasphemy. Right? What is this blasphemy? Only God can forgive sins. Well, they were really close. 
Yes, only God can forgive sins, but Jesus is not committing blasphemy because he is God. Therefore, he can forgive sin. And so that leads to the demonstration of authority. I love the demonstration of authority. He looks at them and he says, what's easier to say? Is it easier to say to the man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise up, take up your bed and walk? Well, of course, it's easier to say that someone's sins are forgiven. John Ritchie, your sins are forgiven. Now prove me wrong. Can't prove me wrong. I can't prove me right. But you can't prove me wrong. But if John was on the floor and his legs were all shriveled up and he couldn't walk, and I said, your sins are forgiven, that's easy. Stand up and walk. Oh, that's different. Because that requires, if you have, if Jesus has the authority to do this, that requires an immediate demonstration, an immediate evidence. So he could have said, your sins are forgiven. Nobody could prove him wrong. But so you know, he tells the Pharisees, so you know that I am who I say I am. So you know that I have the authority that I am claiming in this moment. He looks at the guy and he says, get up. Big moment. If the guy doesn't get up, Jesus is a fraud. If the guy doesn't get up, then the Pharisees, according to the law of Moses, would have the right to drag him outside of town and stone him to death. If the guy doesn't get up, everybody who's listening walks away. Says, I'm done. Clearly, he's not who he says he is. He goes, but I want you to know that I have the power to do this. In verse 24, the word for power there is exousia. And oftentimes in Greek, we see the word power dunamis. It's where we get the word dynamite. And it literally is this energetic and explosive power. The word exousia is different. While it does mean power, it also means privilege, right, authority, and strength. So Jesus isn't just saying, so you know that I have the power to do this. He goes, I want you to know that I have the privilege of forgiving sin. I want you to know that I have the right to forgive sin. I want you to know that I have the authority to forgive sin. And he still has all of that today. Still has I think it's interesting that it's a privilege for him to forgive sin. Personally, right, he had to die on the cross for our sin to be forgiven. And if someone came to him and said, you know, oh, I really blew it, maybe he'd be a little mad. You know what I did to take care of that? He's much better than I am. It's his privilege. I just want you to let that sink in for a moment. It's a God through his son it's his privilege to forgive us. Oh, I love it. Love it. It's his right to forgive us. Like I said, the Pharisees were right. Only God can forgive sin. We can declare someone forgiven based on the authority of Scripture. If someone comes and says, yes, I was a sinner, but I want to turn from my sin. I want to believe in Jesus Christ and give my life to him. I want to be saved by what he did on the cross. Then I can look at that person and say, you're forgiven. Not because I've forgiven you, but because I know what the Bible says, that when you do this, you're forgiven. But only he can actually do the forgiving. Love it. 
Then we get to the third miracle. Right? Rubber meets the road. You want to know if I have the authority to forgive sins? Stand up and walk. Now, was there a collective gasp? (gasps) What did the Pharisees do? You can only picture it, but I'm thinking in the back of their mind, oh, that guy's not standing up. He ain't standing up. That ain't going to happen. Later on, when Jesus rose Lazarus from the grave, they wanted to kill Lazarus because they didn't want people to know that he had risen from the grave. They wanted to hide. Instead of believing, they wanted to hide. That was the hardness of their hearts. So what did they do here? I don't know. Again, facial expressions. Were they shocked? Were they angry? I don't know. I'm guessing, but... Whatever it was at that moment, Jesus showed them up something fierce. Because what did the guy do? He stood up, he picked up his bed, and he walked home. Glorifying God. At this point, Jesus has demonstrated not only his authority to forgive and his power to heal, but he's also demonstrated his compassion and his grace. Verse 25. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been laying on and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things today. At the end of this passage, we see two reactions to what took place. The first reaction is that of glorifying God, right? They glorified God. The second reaction is fear. So, Glorified God. The man glorified God. The people who witnessed this were amazed and they glorified God. I love the word for glorified in Greek. It's doxadzo. It's where we get our phrase for the doxology. Doxadzo. And it means to render or esteem glorious, to honor and to magnify. When we say, oh, we want to we give God all the glory, it means we want to magnify God for what he's done. We want to honor God for what he's done or for who he is. Doxadzo. Everything in our lives should always be for the glory of God. We should never, 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 ever, 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 ever take any of God's glory for ourselves. It's a bad idea. Ever. You want to know how I know it's such a really bad idea? I've been stupid enough to do it. It didn't turn out well. God dealt with me. Isaiah 42.8 I am the Lord. That is my name. Now in, in the Hebrew it's all capitals. Well in English it's all capitals which means he says his name. He says I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah. That is my name and my glory I will not give to another. Don't touch it. It's not ours to touch. Always takes me back to Billy Graham's three rules of ministry. Don't touch the women. Wisdom. Don't touch the money. Wisdom. Don't touch God's glory. You do that, probably going to be okay. Don't do it. You guys remember Nebuchadnezzar? 
Good old Nebuchadnezzar. You can read about this in Daniel chapter 4. Good old Nebuchadnezzar. He's walking on the, the roof of his palace one day, looking at the beautiful hanging gardens of Babylon and the sprawling metropolis that was the capital city of Susa. And he looks out and he says, Look at what I've done. Look at this beautiful kingdom I've created. And a voice spoke from heaven and said, Uh-uh. I gave it to you. How dare you? I gave all of this to you. And if you ever do this again, well, I'm going to make you like a beast. And so he goes and he tells Daniel, and Daniel's like, dude, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. It didn't take long. He did it again. And he spent seven times the Bible says. Some say it's seven years, some say it's seven months. We don't know exactly how long, but seven periods of time living as a beast. He literally went insane. And Daniel took care of him. And according to history, Daniel actually ran the kingdom for him while he was insane. And then if you read his testimony, he says, I came to myself. I came to myself. And Nebuchadnezzar then gave God glory and God restored him. Don't touch his glory. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory, to the doxazo of God. Do everything you do to honor him. Do everything you do to magnify him. Do everything you do to glorify him. I don't care if you're preaching a sermon, if you're sharing the gospel, if you're leading worship. I don't care if you're serving the poor and underprivileged. I don't care if you're eating a sandwich. Whatever you do, do it for his glory. Now, I take that personally. I eat the cupcake to the glory of God. At least I try, because cupcakes are good. How do, we not, how do you not thank God for a cupcake? cake and sugar and frosting. Got to give God glory for that. Filled with fear. They were filled with fear. And I really like this word filled because it actually means swollen. A little bit different. If you want to see a really good example, get my daughter to unwrap her ankle for you. Right? Swollen with fear. So it's not just Right? It, it's, it's to the point that I, when I think of swollen, you think of something expanding. You think of something getting discolored. You think of something that doesn't look quite right. right? This is out of proportion. Swollen. And we have to be careful to not vilify the fear of God. We talked about progressive Christianity earlier. And when we talked about progressive Christianity earlier, one of the things that you will see a lot of churches doing today is they are afraid to talk about sin because they don't want people, oh, we don't want people to feel bad about themselves. We should feel bad about our sin. And they don't talk about the fear of God. Oh, we want people to know that God is love. Yes, God is love. We want to talk about the grace of God. Of course, we should talk about the grace of God. But we don't, we don't want to tell people to fear God. That might scare them off. They should be scared. We are commanded to have a healthy fear of God in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit perfecting holiness in the fear of God. There are places in Scripture where we see 
what a healthy fear, healthy fear of God brings. Proverbs 14, 26 through 27. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. And his children will have a place of refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. When you reject the gospel, you know what's going to happen. That should scare you. Not that any of you have rejected the gospel, but it should scare us for other people. The fear of the God, the fear of God saves us from that. I don't want that judgment. I want salvation. I am literally afraid of what that would bring. I know what the Bible says. It's not pretty. And the fear of God is this gives us confidence and a fountain of life, right? We talk a lot about, oh, we should have self-confidence. We should have God confidence. And the fear of God brings that strong confidence. We also see what lack of such fear brings. Jeremiah 5, verses 24 through 25, it says, They do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives rain, both the former and the latter in its season. He reserves for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these things away, and your sins have withheld good from you. Honestly, I think a pandemic of a lack of the fear of God is why we're in the situation we're in today in our world. People don't fear God. Right? I can live whatever life I want to live. There's no consequence for it. Right? This isn't sin and that's not sin. And, and, and now we have child abuse being called medical care and we have all of this garbage floating around in our world and people going, oh, you're just ignore the religious bigots. We're going to do whatever we want. There's consequences for that. Terrible consequences for that. We should learn. But what is the fear of God? I think it's only, I have to answer that question, right? In Psalm 36, verses 1 and 2, it says, Sin whispers to the wicked deep within their hearts. They have no fear of God to restrain them. In their blind conceit, they cannot see how wicked they really are. We end up with one of two choices. We can choose to not fear God and let sin whisper to us, and we can live without the restraint of God in our blindness, or we can choose to fear God. And when we have a healthy fear of God, one where we love and respect him because of his great love for us, demonstrated by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sin. Our only reasonable response is to love him and to have a healthy reverence and fear for him because of his holiness and perfection. And that leads us to this definition. I stole this from Craig Groeschel, but it's one of the best definitions I've ever heard. Loving God and understanding his love for us while respecting God equals fearing God. It's that simple. Loving God and understanding his love for us while respecting God equals fearing God. When we don't fear him, we don't really know him. 
So many in the church today attempt to make God more palatable by denying the idea that we should fear him. Now, we don't live in fear of him. That's important. That's huge. When I was a kid, you've heard stories about my dad, but when I was a kid, I was in fear of my dad. I hated it when he came home. I hated it when he got angry. I used to run and hide places in my house. So when I was small, um, because I was in fear of him. That's different. That's not how we live with God. I am not afraid of God thinking that he is always out to get me. But I know him. I know from his word who he is. I know of his perfection, of his holiness. And I understand his great love for me. And because of this, I revere him. Because of this, I respect him. Because of this, I fear him. I'm not afraid of him. That's different. But I'm going to have a very healthy fear, a very healthy respect and reverence for who God is. And then at the end, it says they found all of this strange. I like that word strange. It means contrary to expectation, right? They were used to seeing the Pharisees quench anything they didn't agree with. They certainly were used, they were, they were certainly not used to seeing paralyzed people stand up and walk. They were certainly not used to seeing a person standing up to the authority of the religious uh, leaders with a greater authority of their own. This was all contrary to their expectation. I love that. I want God to work contrary to our expectations. The only reason I say that is because our expectations are small. They really are. And I know how big he is. And I know how great he is. And I know how awesome he is. And I know how wonderful he can work. And, and we may want a cup of water when he wants to give us a waterfall. Right? We, we may want a little thing when he wants to give us a big thing. Our family, we're praying for something at this very moment. Some of you know, and you can ask me later when we're not on being recorded, and I'll tell you, but we're praying. And in the back of my mind, this actually happened this morning, uh, in the back of my mind, I was praying over this, and, and I was thinking, well, Lord, if, you, if it was just this, or if it was just that, you know, that would, that would be fine. And, and the Holy Spirit kind of convicted me and said, man, you're thinking small. You're right. I am thinking small. You're a lot bigger than that. All right, Lord, I want it all. It's kind of how that prayer ended up going. If you're going to, do you tell me not to think small? I'm thinking small because I'm putting you in a box. You're out of the box. God, whatever you want to do, pour it out. How cool is that? That's the God we serve. As we close today, there is a lot in today's passage for us to reflect upon. We see God's power present to heal. We see how we can and should live in the awareness of God's presence. We explored the importance of mutual faith in bringing people to Jesus, trusting God to deal with the obstacles. We saw three miracles. We saw Jesus demonstrate his authority as God to forgive sin. We saw his priority to put spiritual healing above physical healing. And we finished up with two reminders. One, that we should give God all the glory for everything. And two, the importance 
of a healthy fear of God. So let's take it home. First, is there anybody here? Is there anybody listening to us online or anybody who may hear this recording later who has not experienced the miracle of forgiveness by the grace and compassion of God in your life? Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the grave so that we could be saved and forgiven. And we need that. We all need that. And if there's anybody listening who doesn't have that, who doesn't know that, Come and talk to me. Talk to somebody else. Leave us a message on Facebook. Send us an email. I don't care how. Just get in touch with us. We want you to know Jesus. Second, are you actively involved in our or your church? There may be people online who go to a different church and that's okay. Are you actively involved in church in the body of Christ so that you can participate in the building up that occurs through the exercise and sharing of our mutual faith. All. There's there's a lot today. Today was like five different sermons, I know. But that is, is one of the keys that we all need to go home with. My dear brothers and sisters, we need each other. God did not do this on accident. There's a lot of people today who get this idea that the church is a man-made construct. No, it's not. It is not a man-made construct. Now, don't get me wrong. Human beings have done things to the church that I don't think glorify God, and that's very unfortunate. But the church itself was God's idea. Right? You go all the way back to the garden. Marriage was God's idea. Why? He saw it's not good for man to be alone. I'll give him somebody. Woohoo! Church, fellowship, mutual faith, the relationship that we have as brothers and sisters in Christ was not an accident. God did it on purpose. Why? Because we need it. We need each other. I need the Spirit of God working in your life to build me up. And you need the Spirit of God working in my life to build you up. We're in this together. And the enemy loves nothing more than to get us alone. Because when we're alone, we're vulnerable. Number three, is there an area of your life where you are not giving God glory? I wrote that down. I do this a lot, right? Earlier in the week, I wrote that question down and then I wanted to get rid of it. Why do you think I wanted to get rid of it? It was very convicting. Because all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit pointed out a couple different areas in my life where I've been reaching my fingers into the glory pot, as it were. And I had to repent of that and apologize. Yeah. Number four, do you possess a healthy fear of God? If in any of these things you need help, you're struggling, you want to talk about it, we're here. And what's beautiful about that is we are here as a church, as the elders, me as, my, as, as the pastor, we're here not because we're perfect and you're not and we're going to help you get better, but because we're all sinners, we're all on a spiritual journey, we're all trying to get closer to Jesus. So let's do it together. It's so much more fun that way. Let's pray. Father, 
I thank you for your great grace and your love for each of us. I thank you, God, for Jesus, our Savior. I thank you for your spirit at work in each of our lives. And I pray, God, I pray that as the spirit is at work in our lives, that that works among us to build us up as the body of Christ. I pray, Father, that in all things, in my life, in our church, in the lives of my brothers and sisters here, I pray that in all things you would be glorified. For you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.